Well, this evening we look at Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17. And the challenge of this unit is to establish its parameters. And you'll notice that I've provided an outline there. However, there is another clue to why this section of four verses is a unit in its own right. And as you look at it, um, you might suggest what the other clue to segregating these four verses from the rest of this section of the third chapter. <clears throat> as you scan over it, what what do you see there that would also suggest that this this is a distinguishable unit? Singing. Well, there's something to be said for that. Anything else? It's in the third person. It's in the third person. So our speaker, Marge? And it is the prophet speaking again. Yes, you'll know the third person singular, he and his pronoun, which dominates these four verses. <clears throat> so we've changed speakers. And that's one justification for saying this is a distinct rhetorical or literary unit. <clears throat> but there are other clues, in fact, even stronger clues, though they reinforce uh, <clears throat> that uh, distinction of speaker. <clears throat> and you'll notice from your outline <clears throat> that uh, verse 14 has the word shout in it. From the Hebrew word, Hebrew verb, ranan, which I've placed there in parentheses so you can see it. And then down at the bottom in verse 17, you'll notice that we have that same form, at least it begins the same way. The third letter is different, rina, but it is a cognate of ranan. <clears throat> Up above in 14, that's the verb. To shout, and down in 17, rina is the noun for a shout or shouts. Now, very significantly, the first word in the Hebrew text of verse 14 is this word for shout, the verb ranan. The last word in verse 17 is the Hebrew word for shout as a noun, rina. So <clears throat> there's actually an envelope here. The beginning word in this unit and the last word in this unit come from the very same Hebrew root, <clears throat> Hebrew cognates, a noun and a verb as the case may be. That's an even stronger uh, emphasis or uh, outline of the fact that we have a distinct unit here because this whole section is framed in the first word in the section by a similar word of the same language, of the same family of uh, Hebrew cognates, the last word of verse 17. So verse 14 begins, verse 17 ends with the very same Hebrew lemma or cognates, 
And that's a stronger argument, perhaps even than the change of speaker, indicating that we have a framework around this entire section. But as we move inside, there's another, uh, there's another element of uh, similarity, which also reinforces the fact that we have a, a, a unit in its integrity between verses 14 and 17. As you look at your outline, the word rejoice, sama in the Hebrew, which is the verb, and then down in verse 17, the word for joy or rejoice in terms of the, the act of rejoicing, simha, the noun, and you can see that the first three letters of those uh, words are the same, which once again is an indication of a cognate, that is, they're in the same word family in the Hebrew tongue. So again, the prophet has repeated uh, two uh, uh, words which are reciprocally similar. It's interesting that in verse 14, he uses the verb in both of those cases, uh, rana and sama, and then in verse 17, he uses the noun, <coughs> simha and rina. Now, as we move <coughs> through the rest of this unit, you notice we also have other duplications. <coughs> and I've lined them out here <coughs> so that you could see them in the uh, English translation, things that line up. Uh, in uh, reciprocal fashion or symmetrical fashion. The king of Israel uh, designation in verse 15. And I'm choosing the translation great savior in verse 17. Now in some of your versions, the second line of verse 17 may read a great warrior or a victorious warrior or a warrior who saves. The word for warrior there is in the Hebrew gibor, which I don't necessarily think means warrior here. I'm persuaded that the adjective great is significant enough for the quality here. And uh, victorious doesn't really catch the flavor of the significance of the Hebrew verb. It's yasa, it's the Hebrew word for save or deliver. Now, it is true that the Lord is a warrior who delivers, and that sometimes is used of him, particularly in Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. But uh, I don't think that's the sense here. And so I'm choosing the marginal reading, and I'm actually altering that uh, with my own emphasis upon the fact that this king of Israel is a great savior, the parallel uh, between those two designations of God, I think, is description of his marvelous attributes, particularly in his role as ruler over his people and savior or deliverer of his people. <clears throat> so I'm preferring a, a yet another suggestion for the translation of the Hebrew there in verse 17, uh, great savior. Go ahead, Randy. A mighty one doesn't capture it. You see, this this Hebrew word, yasa, is the word that we would uh, translate savior or saves or delivers. And so I don't see any reason to depart from that majority.
translation here, <clears throat> uh, even though there are those who are trying to capture the image of clash and so on. I, 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 I think that the imagery here is not so much the clash of warfare or the, the conflict that is around the approaching destruction of Jerusalem as it is uh, God's deliverance <clears throat> of this Jerusalem. Go ahead, Randy. Before we get too far away from that, I don't think we get back to this. The second part of verse 14 says, Shout, O Israel. Is that the same verb as the other two? No, that second verb is different. So he's using syn- He's also using synonyms. <clears throat> it could be translated shout as well, but it's a, it's a different word than the one I've got on your outline. So he used... He, As I say, they're synonyms, so it's possible that the second word could be translated shout, and the New American Standard does it in parallel. <clears throat> you could say exalt, but he also uses the word exalt down uh, in, the, in, in that verse as well. <clears throat> in other words, uh, there isn't one set meaning for many Hebrew words. In other words, there are nuances, okay? <clears throat> very much the same as, as we have in English. You know, we, we, mine uses the same for 14 and 17. That's fine. That's, that's, that, allowed. that's fine. That's allowed. That's a legitimate translation. But you would, you would want to do the same thing in verse 17, you see. So you'd want the parallel right. in verse 17. Did your version do that in verse 17? Yeah. Is the, la- is the last word sing for joy? Loud singing. Sing aloud. Sing aloud. And then the second part of verse 14 is shout. So it's consistent, I guess. But what about verse 17 in your verse? The last phrase in verse 17. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Okay. All right. So they're consistent. Mm-hmm. Right. Any other uh, comments? <clears throat> now, it's interesting that as you arrange these patterns, you come to the kind of crossover point with the do not fear language in verse 15 and 16. You see parallel between in your midst in 15 and 17. The one place where there is no parallel is there in verse 15, just after rejoice, the name for Lord, Yahweh in the Hebrew, is in the text, but there is no parallel in verse 17 to that. So uh, there's no exact chiasm here. So I'm demonstrating uh, the absence of a chiasm, though it is a near chiasm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we do have reciprocity. That's my point. And in these four verses, we have a great deal of reciprocal symmetry. You can see it lined out there. Now, why do I draw attention to that? This is the richest eschatological portion of the prophet Zephaniah's work. There is marvelous imagery here. And almost as if to exalt the thing that he's talking about, to exalt the Lord who is the King and the Savior, almost as if he can't do it in any other way but singing duplicate hymns or singing duplicate lines. He multiplies this reciprocal mirror-like imagery. And he does it in such plethora here that it bursts out upon you as you look at the Hebrew text. My point being, he's so enriched 
in the language of his description. He's enriching the drama of what he's projecting here. He's enriching the dramatic eschatology of what he is prophesying here, that he does it with duplicates, repeated duplicates, symmetries, repeated symmetries, as if he wants to draw you into the duplicate or repeated drama once again and once over again, you know, bringing you twice over into the, uh, the passion and the drama that he is describing in this unit. So there's a, there's a method to the madness. There's a reason for all of this similarity here. It's a rich similarity, which is, in fact, outweighs the symmetrical duplication in the rest of the book. There is, it, it, it actually explodes here in these four verses. All right. <clears throat> Any questions? All right. Well, then let's tie together the thread of his argument, the thread of his prophetic uh, delivery declaration uh, from verse 8 of this chapter on. This is a biblical theological paradigm. We've outlined that in terms of how he is transcending the uh, world of his own imagery. Now, the first thing that he does in verses 8 to 10 is assemble the eschatological peoples. And he gathers them from the nations, from the Gentile regions. He also gathers them from Israel, Judah, in verses 11 to 13. So, the gathering of this eschatological assembly, both from the nations and from the nation, namely God's nation of Israel, Judah. Having assembled that body, having gathered that assembled host from the four corners of the world and from Israel, Judah, how do those who are assembled, how does that body respond? They respond in verse 14 with shouts of joy. The eschatological people respond to the eschatological gathering by singing hymns, by exalting the Lord. And why do they do it? Because the Lord, their king, is in their midst. Because the Lord, their savior, is in their midst. Notice that central in your midst or in the midst phrase in verses 15 and 17. That is the language of presence. That is the language of God's intimate nearness. He is with his people. He is dwelling within their midst. He is not distanced or far off from them. He is drawn near unto them and is, in fact, the very middle of their assembly. But then, notice what the prophet does. In order to reciprocate the exaltation of the people, God himself sings a hymn. God sings a hymn of exaltation over the eschatological people gathered from the nations and gathered from Israel, Judah. Notice the tone of this redemptive historical or biblical theological pattern. This is the tone 
of joyous celebration. It is the tone of singing exaltation. It is the tone of hymnic declaration. And it is reciprocal. Notice it. As the peoples sing their hymns of joy to the Lord, the Lord sings his hymn of joy over his people. It is a mirror paradigm. As those who have been drawn into the kingdom of the Lord, those who have been brought by his saving mercy into his presence, as they sing and exalt in that wonderful drama and that precious sweet reality, God himself sings a hymn over them. The eschatological singer of the hymn is the Lord, the King, the Savior of his people. This is marvelous eschatological fruition. It underscores the relational dimension which Zephaniah has hinted at, he's suggested, but here he climaxes this book with this very rich and powerful relational God and his people, God's people and their God. Reciprocal mirror relationship, singer and singing, singing and singer. Mutual reciprocity. When you think about that, surely you pause to realize that anyone who has the king of Israel in the midst of them shings for joy. Anyone who has the savior of his soul in his midst, sings for joy. But then, as your heart exalts, as your songs hymn forth, then grace upon grace, you realize that Zephaniah tells you that God sings over those he has saved. And God sings over his lowly subjects. This is a marvelous declaration of the delight that God has in his saved and kingdom children. We should not forget it. We should not forget it. In times of tribulation, we should not forget it in times of stress and distress. We should not forget it in times of opposition, harassment, and bullying. We should not forget it. We should remind ourselves that as the prophet Zechariah says, we are the apple of his eye. He beholds us with delight because he has saved us. 
and he is king over us. This is a refreshing reminder of what Zephaniah needed to hear. What Zephaniah needed to receive and believe and proclaim. Though he was not oppressed, as far as we know, as his countryman Jeremiah was, he nonetheless lived in the age in which Jeremiah would be persecuted and rejected and isolated and ostracized and called names. Did that fall upon Zephaniah? We do not know for sure, but he lived in the era of the rejection of God's prophets. And he is reminded, as he reminds us in this text, that you cannot take the sons and daughters of the kingdom away from the songs of delight that the king sings over them. And you cannot take the sons and daughters of grace who have been saved by the unmerited gift of God. You cannot take them away from their gracious and merciful Savior because they are the apple of his eye. They are the delight of his heart. He looks upon them with the quietness of his love. Randy? Whom did Jeremiah receive most of his persecution from? Manasseh, certainly not Hosea. No, he receives it from Jehoiakim. After Hosea. After Josiah? Yes, yes. Jehoiakim is after Josiah. It is conceivable that even during Josiah's reign that Jeremiah may have been oppressed uh, because he takes his his commission uh, in the fourth year of Josiah uh, and or in the 13th year of Josiah, I should say, somewhere around 626, 627. And he's told right there in the commission in the first chapter that he's going to be opposed. So the opposition to Jeremiah may have matured or, or, or materialized very early in his prophetic career, even though Josiah was king, and even though Josiah brought this great reformation, it didn't mean that everybody was on the same page with Josiah. It didn't mean that there wasn't a fifth column of Baal worshipers and so on in Jerusalem, even in Josiah's years. <clears throat> this is one of the interesting questions about the date of Zephaniah. You know, how do we place it with respect to Josiah's career? <clears throat> So we didn't solve that when we addressed it. We know it's sometime before 612 because he's predicting the fall of Nineveh and Assyria in chapter 2, but we can't get any closer to a precise date. You're welcome. All right, this is cause then for much rejoicing on our part as we too find ourselves folded into the biblical theological paradigm by means of the words of the prophet Zephaniah. There is a wonderful uh, display, there is a wonderful proclamation, there is a wonderful preaching of the mercy and grace and delight and happiness and exaltation and love of the Lord God, King and Savior of his people from the nations and from Israel, Judah alike. All right, now, there are other things to note 
about this section. And you turn to the second page of your outline. If we go back to verse 11 for a moment. The key phrase in that 11th verse is this uh, from your midst language. Language which we also observe in verses 15 and 17 later on. But there's a pattern of reversal here. In verse 11, who is going to be removed from the midst? Those who rejoice in their pride. Those who are rebels against the Lord God himself. It includes proud and arrogant ones who exalt themselves. Now, what is the pattern in verses 15 and 17? It is not a removal, is it? Marge, you shook your head. You are right. Yes, it is a coming. It is an advent. It is a virtual incarnation, if we could say. It may be too strong, but nonetheless, you get the idea. Notice on the one hand, God is going to remove something. On the other hand, he is going to bring his presence near in the very midst of his people. So this reverse paradigm of what is going to happen to those who are sinners being removed that God may come, God may uh, draw near with his presence. In other words, in this place of verses 15 and 17 where he is in the midst, he has removed the sinners, he has removed the haughty, he has removed the rebellious, he has removed the arrogant, he has removed them from that place. They are barred from that arena for God who cannot abide rebellion or pride or haughtiness or wrongdoing or sin or arrogance or lawlessness or stonewalling or bullying. God who cannot abide any of that will be in the midst of those whom he has formed, renewed, regenerated, and recreated after his very own image. All right, so we have an initial pattern of reversal that reaches back to the previous section, one of the previous units. Now, let's ask a broader question. Let's go back beyond chapter 3. Let's go all the way back to chapter 1. Okay, the relationship of chapter 3 to chapter 1. As you look at the language in chapter 1, or if you remember the language in chapter 1, What was the dominant theme that began that chapter? Judgment. Judgment, all right. Anything else? How did the judgment, what was the image of the judgment that was peculiar to Zephaniah's recounting of that judgment? He's going to utterly, at least mine was, says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He's going to do what? Take everything away. He's going to do what? He's reversing creation. He's reversing creation. 
He's going to perform an uncreation. In fact, he goes in reverse order in verses 2 and 3 in that first chapter to underscore he's going to undo the creation. The creation is in the reverse order in Genesis 1. He's going to reverse that order. And Zephaniah shows by the language that he uses in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that God is going to decreate. He is going to reverse the creation of the world. Well, what about chapter 3? If chapter 1 is an uncreation, a decreation, a reversal of the creation, what is chapter 3, particularly what we've been looking at here? New creation. This is a new creation. It is a recreation. It is a reversal of the reversal. In other words, God is going to undo the created order. He's going to reverse that reversal in a new creation. And this is the imagery of a new creation here in Zephaniah chapter 3, particularly verses 14 to 17. This is the heart of the eschatology of Zephaniah. These four verses are the heart of that wonderful rich and profound projection of a reverse order of creation. All right, well, what about Jerusalem? The focus of much of this prophecy has been on the city of Jerusalem. We had an extensive section in chapter 1 from verses 10 and 11 following about Jerusalem. We even got some Uh, geopolitical descriptions of regions or sections of the city in that uh, section of chapter 1. So if we look back at chapter 1, verse 10, the old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of Zephaniah's own time, is destined for what? Destruction. Destruction. On the day of what? which is verse 14 and 15, a day of what? day of the Lord. 584. A day of wrath. How do we say that in Latin? Dies irae. Very good. All right. So, the old Jerusalem, destruction, day of wrath, the dies irae, which is exactly what verse 15 of chapter 1 in the Latin reads. What about the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem of chapter 3, verse 16. The New Jerusalem is destined for what? God's presence. Okay. Day of rejoicing. Okay. Safety, protection. Okay. Old Jerusalem, destruction. New Jerusalem, Restoration or salvation? On the day of what? Grace. Grace. And the Latin for that? Dies gratia. Once again, notice that the bookends of this whole prophecy swing between that reciprocal paradigm, day of wrath, day of grace. Here, in this section, that gracious deliverance, that gracious rule of God, that gracious presence of God in the midst of this new Jerusalem, that gracious reality is uh, 
is before us in a multiplicity of images and motifs. So, this is a pattern of reversal again, the reversal of the old by the new Jerusalem, reversal of a city of destruction with a city of restoration and salvation, a day of wrath reversed by a day of grace. Zephaniah preaches the whole counsel of God on these central points. Any questions? All right, now, some other peculiarities of the individual verses. Beginning with verse 14. There is yet another bracket paradigm here. In this 14th verse, let me see if you can pick it out from your English versions. There's a bracket paradigm or a paradigm of similarity. Very good. Thank you, Ben. That's exactly what we're looking at. And in the Hebrew text, the daughter of Zion begins this section and the daughter of Jerusalem ends this section. In other words, this verse is bracketed between the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem. It begins as it ends. It ends as it begins. It ends as it begins in symmetry and reciprocal parallelism. Now that raises a question about that language of exaltation, singing, hymning, etc. Notice the mirror that is present there. We pointed it out uh, earlier, but here we want to uh, absorb it a little more deeply. Notice in verse 14, you will sing with all your heart to the Lord in this day of grace. On this day, when God is in the midst, you will sing with all your heart to the Lord. For you will love the Lord on that day with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. But in verse 17, he mirrors you. He sings with, may we say, all his love over you. In verse 17, we've commented on this reciprocity already, but notice here how the heart of the believers in verse 14 is reciprocated by the love of God in verse 17. That which flows from the center of affection in God the King, our Savior. That which is at the heart of his being, his Love center, his passion for his people, his delight with intense affection, love, and uh, and and delight, all of that devoted to you who have been redeemed by his grace. The mirror reflection, particularly suited to encourage the heart of Zephaniah and the heart of that remnant of Israel, verse 13, that remnant which will enjoy or possess this new Jerusalem, 
this daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, which is unlike the Zion or Jerusalem that Zephaniah lived in. She is unlike because God is in her very midst. Randy. I never, that thought never crossed my mind before in the 40 years I've been a Christian that God is singing. And it just hit me tonight. It just seems astonishing that, you know, just like, wow, you know, I mean, wow. Very good. Yes, it is. It's, a, it's something to meditate, something to savor, and something to drink in, it's something for your soul to rejoice in. Let your soul sing with response to that. It's one of the great things about singing the hymns of the church, that we're exalted in our soul, in our songs coming up before the Lord as the resonance of our own exaltation in his name, in his name. The glory is directed to him. It's not to our singing. Nonetheless, this is something that is reciprocal to his singing over us. The Psalms are the songs of Israel. The Psalms are the songs of the people of God of the Old Testament. The singers of the Psalms, David the sweet singer of Israel, the singers of the Psalms are singing in response. They're singing in response to the God who sings over them. And... The eschatological singer is Christ, which is the reason the Psalms drive us to Jesus. So, we love to sing the Psalms because they drive us to Jesus. But we want to sing on the other side of the Psalms too. As Professor Sanborn has said, inclusive hymnody. Psalms and hymns both. Because the choir of angels in heaven is singing more than the Psalter. Believe me, they are singing, Worthy is the Lamb. They are singing from the other side of the resurrection. You don't want to restrict yourself simply to singing from the Psalter on the nether side, on the not yet fulfilled side of the resurrection. You want to sing, Alleluia, Christ is risen. At least, I think you do. Because, you see, the early church did. They understood that there was more there than simply the expectation or anticipation. They wanted to sing the realization and the actualization. Ben? I was going to say there's no danger of that. Because all we do is sing hymns, practically. There's no psalmody in the church. Well, when when you... We know Psalm 22... Christ sings in the midst of the congregation, I will praise him. So if you were singing there regularly, you would not be so surprised that Christ would sing as his people. Yeah, the, yeah, the point is that Christ is the, is the singer of the Psalms, but he's singing it on the other side of his resurrection as well. So he's singing more than just the anticipation or projection of it. He's singing the actual realization of it. And so the construction of the hymns of the New Testament, for instance, Philippians 2, etc., is an indication that the richness of the singing of the church, the Christian church, is beyond this altar, not excluded to it. That's a biblical theological paradigm. You move in the increasing drama of the richness of the language and the, the hymnody and psalmody of the, of the church. 
psalms and hymns and spiritual songs more than the Psalter. Scott? I think Ben was also saying we're not singing enough of the psalms sometimes in some congregations. Psalms are an important part of the worship of God's people together with what you're talking about. A, a uh, healthy reminder that we have a hymn, and we have lots of psalms in our hymn book, and so we want to sing them as well as the hymns as, of the church as well. So we don't want to discriminate against either. We'd be happy to sing both. Okay. All right, well, that brings us to verse 15, and time for a break. which also has an interesting form. That form must be derived from the Hebrew text. But there is a sandwich here in this verse. And the king of Israel, the Lord, is the center of the sandwich. He is framed between words on either side of that three-word in Hebrew expression. And interestingly, there are five Hebrew words before that expression, the King of Israel, the Lord, and there are five words in Hebrew after that expression in this 15th verse. So it is a verse which is, once again, symmetrically balanced. It is, in fact, perfectly balanced in terms of word word count. And at the center are the three Hebrew words, King of Israel, the Lord. Now, obviously, it's more words in English than it is in Hebrew, but nonetheless, those are the three words, King, Israel, and Yahweh. Now, in verse 16, we want to note uh, locations, which takes us back to verse 14. So, as you look at verse 14, you've already looked at this, what location and what order of location do you find in verse 14? Jerusalem. What's first? Zion. Zion is first. Jerusalem is second in verse 14. <clears throat> now, as you look at verse 16, what do you see? What's first? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is first. What's second? Zion is second. <clears throat> There's a reverse chiasm. So once again, we have the symmetry, but we have it in chiastic form. <clears throat> Remembering that the chiasm is a mirror. And so in the chiasm, Zion lines up with Zion and Jerusalem lines up with, Zion, uh, with Jerusalem because they are reciprocal relations. And he builds that intentionally <clears throat> into this three-verse panel. He frames that central section about the Lord in the midst in verse 15 between these locations. So, the Lord who is in the midst is in the midst of this Zion-Jerusalem, this Jerusalem-Zion, which has the presence of God central to its own location and identity. Finally, verse 17 Verse 17 also has an in-your-midst sandwich. In this case, 
the in your midst phrase is sandwiched between the Lord your God and according to my translation, that is my personal rendering of this verse, your great Savior. The centrality of the Lord in the midst of his people is framed around that central drama. And then Zephaniah uses three verbal clauses at the end of this 17th verse. Three clauses that begin with a verb and then have an interesting use of the preposition in. The first, uh, the first line is in the New American Standard, he will exalt over you with joy. So the first verb on your outline is exalt, followed by over you, and the in preposition, the base in Hebrew, he will exalt over you in joy. New American Standard translates with joy. That's an acceptable alternate translation, but I'll be quite literal here with the base preposition in joy. Now, the second clause, second verbal clause, is he will be quiet. Now, you'll notice that there is some discussion about the proper translation of that Hebrew word, and it is a difficult Hebrew word to translate, but I'm going to agree with the New American Standard. The Lord will be quiet. In, there's the in preposition again, the base in Hebrew, in his ahav, or ahava, in his love. Now, you notice that in that second verbal clause, there is no over you. He will be quiet in his love. Does that suggest that that is within you and not merely over you? Interesting thought. I won't press it, but it may be one of the reasons for the difference. But the final verbal clause, he will rejoice over you with or in shouts of joy. And actually, the three words, shouts of joy, is just one word in the Hebrew. We've already seen that on the first page of your outline, the noun rinah. All right, what do we make of this? Well, he is using verbs of God's action and describing its action as a canopy in two instances, that is, it's like an umbrella over you. He exalts over you. He places his canopy over you of joy. In fact, he duplicates that, although he uses two different words for joy in these clauses. <clears throat> they are synonyms, but nonetheless, they're different Hebrew words. He, once again, rejoices over you. He places you under the canopy of his rejoicing joy. And in between, he sandwiches the love of God, which is in him and in you. Randy? Mine, DSV says he will quiet you by his love. That seems to make more sense than... He will be quiet in his love. That's possible. As I say, the Hebrew word here is difficult. Uh, I'm going to 
use it as a verb, uh, a, a verb in, in the sense of his own quietness. That is, it's uh, the contrast between the God who is in his wrath going to destroy this city and God who in his quiet pastoral role is going to place his love within and over his city. Difficulties with the case or, or with the mood of the verb? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, do they, does Hebrew even use cases and moods? That's another question. Yes, they do. Okay. Yes, they do. They have tenses and moods. <clears throat> this form is, is challenging. It, it's difficult. So that's the reason you have the variety of suggestions. So as I said, the, the translation you're suggesting from the ESV is possible. There's even a marginal note in the New American Standard which says, renew you in his love. <clears throat> I think that's a little too strong. Uh, <clears throat> I think there's a, there's a pastoral image here because remember we've been talking about pastoral motif up in verse 13. If we go back to chapter 2, we've had another pastoral motif in chapters, in, in verses, mm, yeah, 7, etc. So there's been a pastoral undercurrent. And so God's pacific pastoral presence is what I think is suggested here. Your, uh, your comment, he will, uh, what was your translation again? He will quiet you. Okay, that that would that could also be derived from a pastoral motif. So it, it's possible. Uh, <clears throat> the fact that I'm following the New American Standard is it's a quibble. Okay, so we, we we'll agree to quibble over this, <laughs> but it's the it's the quietness of God's love in in whatever circumstance it's being administered. The peace that passes all understanding. That kind of quietness that comes from the love of God. Now, in conclusion, I've made a note about the light motif. Now, you may ask me, where is the light in this unit? Well, I've underscored the contrast between the darkness of Jerusalem from chapter 1, verse 12, with the presence of or the glory presence of God, both in his own uh, aseity, that is, in himself, and also in his revelation. And I don't want to leave that out here. I want to uh, draw your attention to the light motif in relationship to the New Jerusalem. In fact, I want to personify the New Jerusalem. I want the New Jerusalem to, as it were, sing herself. I want her to hymn her exaltation. This New Jerusalem, which is projected here, is a city of light. In her, in this section, there is no darkness. And that light streams from her king, her all-glorious ever-radiant sovereign king. That light beams, that light flows from her majestic savior. Her majestic savior, all-merciful, 
the ever-gracious, effulgent deliverer. This city, this new Jerusalem is filled with the glory light of the king in the midst. This city is filled with the eternal light of the Savior in the midst. This is the eschatological city of light, everlasting, with no dark corners, no dark streets, no dark hearts. It is full of the light of the presence of God. It is full of the glory light of the love of God. It is full of the radiant light of the joy of God the Lord. This city, this new Jerusalem says, Come to my light. Come to the Lord God who is in the midst of me. Come to the shining radiance of the glory of the great king who sits astride the throne of this city of everlasting light. Come, do not be afraid. Rather, come to the light which pours forth from the Savior in the midst of me. Come to the love light which streams from the Savior in the midst of me. Come to the source. Come to the source of the light which shines all around me. Come, says the daughter of Zion. Come, says the daughter of Jerusalem. Come to the light of my world. The light of my transcendent eschatological world. Come to the source, the one who is enthroned in the midst of me because he is the Savior who has delivered all within me from the darkness. He has delivered all within my world of light. He has delivered them from the darkness. The eternal darkness of evil and deceit and lawlessness and arrogance and death, horrid, murderous, bloody death, none of that darkness is in my city. None of that darkness is in my king. None of that darkness is in the Savior whose eternal love is the eternal light of my eternal city. Thus, the new Jerusalem. Thus, the city with God the Savior, 
the king in the midst, the city of Zephaniah's projection. Thus, Augustine's city of God. That is the celestial city, open in its glorious light for your hymns and songs of exaltation, joy, pacific quiet in the love of God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son by the operation of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Any questions? Scott? I have a question going back way at the beginning. And that is, um, you said that God is singing in their midst, I'm assuming, and, and then the, they're singing and then God's singing. I'm assuming God's singing is, at that point, you were talking about verse 16. Is that correct? Verse 17. So you were talking about verse 17. So... Do not be afraid, o, o Zion. Do you think that's the prophet speaking rather than God, or do you think that's God speaking? Uh, I had thought it was the prophet, uh, simply because it's in this section which contains his remarks. Um, but now that you raise a question, it gives me pause. <laughs> Um, I don't think I'll pause too long. I don't think I'll, I'll uh, depart because the use of the Zion-Jerusalem language there in 16 reciprocates verse 14. So I think, I think it's the same imagery. Although your argument might be, well, God is answering the prophet. Yeah, God is speaking to Zion. Do not be afraid of Zion. Do not let your hands fall down. That, that's... I, I just I thought that's what you were maybe saying. So no, I'm I'm not saying that. Not but saying that. but now that you are saying it, I say you give me pause. But okay. <laughs> I didn't hold the pause button too long. Okay. Um, so uh, were then were you thinking that sixteen was them talking and seventeen was God talking? Where did you get their singing and God? Where was that? Well, God's singing is in verse seventeen. He will rejoice or he will sing over you. With shouts of joy, which reciprocates verse fourteen. Oh, which reciprocates fourteen. Yes. That, okay. That, and that's the parallel you brought out in this last hour here. Okay. Yes. So that's what you were referring to. Even in the first hour, when you looked at the at the overall symmetry right. on the first page. Okay. Okay. So um, would there be if the sixteen is God singing and speaking to Zion because uh, it's going to be said to Jerusalem? You know, in that day it will be set to Jerusalem. So someone in the future, I suppose, is saying that to Jerusalem. Uh, if that were God, would that change your paradigm here? I, I don't see how it would. I, well, I'd have to reconsider uh, <laughs> bringing, bringing God in from the wings. Okay. But I think he's present throughout, at least in projection. Um, but if he's speaking here, if, if that's the case... Uh, then I had yes, I would have to rethink my paradigm. Yes, Art? By the way, an argument against saying that it's God speaking in verse 16 is, is verse 17, which is a continuation, refers to God in the third person. Thank you, Art. Yeah. Take all the help I can get. 
I understand I'm not dogmatic about this. I mean, Scott's raising a question that's uh, worthy of consideration. And it's one, of the, it's one of the reasons that this section with the commentators will be divvied up uh, differently than I did it. Uh, you'll see some bracket 14 to 16 and then put 17 and 18 together and then 19 to 20. I don't think that works. I particularly don't think it works in terms of the symmetry of the Hebrew words in 16 and in 14 and 17. Did, did you have your hand up, Carol? On verse 15, I missed, I got the first three words, the king of Israel, the Lord, and then the second, I didn't catch what you It's five words. It's five words at the beginning, three words in the middle, and five words at the end. Okay. That's what I wanted. Thank you. Five, three, five. And even though there are more than five words in the English translation of the Lord, the King, uh, the Lord of Israel, the, the King of Israel, the Lord, rather, it's only three words in the Hebrew text. Melech, Yisrael, Yahweh. Yes, Randy? I think that phrase, let not your hands grow weak, is interesting because you couldn't be talking about at the end time right there because our hands aren't going to get weak. We're in heaven. So this, I think they throws that in there maybe to encourage us right now about all this. No, let not your hands grow weak right now would be the only way that would make any sense. Well, we'll, we'll make it a now, not yet encouragement. Right. How's that? But your hands couldn't grow weak in the state of paradise, I don't think, could they? But it's an exhortation. Yeah, no, they couldn't, but it's an exhortation which expresses that uh, surpassing strength of that arena. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. The richness of your revelation to your servant Zephaniah overwhelms us, even as you, almighty King and Savior, overwhelm us in your glory, the light of your glory, the light of your Son, who is the light of our dark world. And that Jerusalem above, in which there is no darkness at all, And the saints who dwell in that everlasting light, even now, with the angels around your throne. A new Jerusalem eternal in the heavens. For Zephaniah's participation in that vision and in that drama, we give you thanks. And we particularly thank you that it encourages our hearts in days of darkness, deep darkness, days of deceit. Days of public lying. Days of lawlessness. Days of ruthless, bloody murder. These are days that strike caution and even fear into our hearts, Lord. But the day of your grace what you have accomplished in its fullness through Christ 
the eschatological Zephaniah. That gives us peace. We rest from our trepidation in him who is at the center as king of the new Jerusalem, as the great savior, the center of that city, who has sung the song of salvation, redemption, restoration, and recreation over his sons and daughters. We rejoice together with our brothers and sisters throughout the world who own this faith, who prize this King and Savior, who long for that city whose builder and maker is God. So, give us peace in the power of your affectionate love. Give us no fear in the drama of your exaltation and joy over us as you are the God in our presence. We bless you for being incarnate in our presence. In Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.